0: Uh, U.S. Air Force and National Assets. Uh, Our first speaker is Colonel Richard Stotts. And uh, Colonel Stotts is the commander of the Air Force Information Warfare Center, which is located at Kelly Air Force Base in Texas. Following him, we'll have a presentation from Jerome Webb, who's chief of the Air Force Information Warfare Center's Threat Analysis Section. And he's an expert on various kinds of computer-oriented threats. And unfortunately, he's wearing the wrong tie today. Uh, You'll see when he's on camera. Uh, And then uh, bringing up at the end of the presentation is Captain Matt Beebe. Uh, He's a countermeasures engineer with the Air Force. And he's also the program manager uh, for the work that's done with the automated security incident measurement tool, the ASIM tool, that the Air Force uses worldwide to protect Air Force computer systems. So without further introduction, uh, other than to say that we are especially pleased, Colonel Stotts is a Purdue graduate and we're very happy to have him back on campus as a result. Uh, please join me, in, uh, join me in welcoming
1: our friends from the Air Force, Colonel Stotts. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> well, good afternoon everyone. Uh, I, first of all, let me thank Dr. Spafford and all of you for letting us come to talk to you today. Um, promise that even though we're going to give you three different speeches, we're not going to do this in three times the amount of time that you normally have to do this uh, seminar. Uh, So we're going to handle this in uh, about three 15-minute segments. If you have questions as we go through the presentations, please don't hesitate uh, to ask us. It'll be easier if we address those as we go than trying to hold everything until the end. What are we going to do for you today? First of all, I'm going to put some things in context for you because you need to understand what it is that we do in the Air Force and how we do it in what we call information operations and information warfare. So we'll talk a little bit about doctrine, which I know is just going to thrill everybody, uh, and a little bit about why we do what we do, our thrust and our intent, just so that you understand uh, why we are so interested in computer network defense. Then uh, Jerry Webb's going to talk to you about the threat and then Matt Beebe is going to come up and uh, and talk to you about our defensive tools. So who are we at the Air Force Information Warfare Center? First of all, uh, we do everything from the uh, development of technological solutions, solution exploration in response to identified requirements, all the way through the fielding and sustainment of those tools in conjunction with our uh, Air Force counterparts at uh, Electronic Systems Command. Now, we do that, uh, first of all, by understanding what the threat is, and that happens at the Information Operations Analysis Division, uh, one of the uh, divisions that Jerry is in. Um, identify what the vulnerabilities are, both our adversaries' vulnerabilities, but also our own U.S. vulnerabilities. Uh, uh, and then we pass those to the technology folks, and they uh, develop capability to help us to defend ourselves from uh, attack. We also have a uh, an operations group, the 318th Information Operations Group, which is responsible for teaching Air Force operators how to use information operations technology. We have a test squadron which tests the technical capabilities to make sure that the things that we do are replicable over time. Uh, We have an electronic warfare squadron which does modeling and simulation work for us. an aggressor squadron which actually emulates uh, the red threat uh, against installations in the Air Force so that we can again determine what our vulnerabilities are and then we have an organization, the the 23rd Information Operations Squadron which is responsible for developing our tactics, techniques and procedures. So what I thought I'd do is um, give you a briefing like this And I hope that when I get finished with this discussion, my results are not equally disturbing. Okay. In uh, 1993, just shortly after Desert Storm, General Glenn Otis, who was the commander of the Army um, Tactics and Doctrine School, made this statement. And the thing that is of particular importance here is his... Assertion that the combatant that wins the informa- information campaign prevails, and that is particularly true. And you'll see that the Air Force, as we have gone from the 1992-1993 timeframes through to today, have actually developed doctrine and are increasing our understanding of what it means to to fight in the information arena. Um, I'm going to show you a short video clip here in just a moment, but the um, the video deals with the Somalia uh, operation. And in October, I'm sorry, in July of 1992, the United States began to provide humanitarian relief to Mogadishu, Somalia, due to the, uh, the famine that was ongoing there. Uh, the problem, as you'll see, is that we got into something that's called mission creep. And instead of continuing in a humanitarian operation, we actually expanded that into a peacekeeping operation and then into a peace enforcement operation with some pretty tragic consequences. Let me just show you the video clip here.
0: We don't kill captured soldiers, but the ones killed in the battle, nothing good comes of them which is why they were dragged through the streets. They deserved it. Before October 3rd, the people in that neighborhood were subjected to severe punishment from the American forces. Their houses were destroyed. Their property was destroyed. And on this day, they were trying to destroy whatever they saw of Americans. Dragging their bodies through the town was very unfortunate.
1: While crowds begin to mill around the wreckage, Moalim and his friends carry Durant from the crash site to deliver him to Idid clan leaders. Half a mile away, the battle still raging. In October of 1993, there was a warlord named Mohammed Farah Adid who was in control of Mogadishu, Somalia. As the U.S. continued to pump supplies into Mogadishu, Instead of those supplies, medicines, foodstuffs being given to the people that needed them, Mohammed Farah Adid and his thugs would steal the food and either sell it on the black market or keep it for themselves. That was obviously an unacceptable situation. And so uh, the United Nations first said... Uh, we need to secure the lines of communication, the ways the food uh, and medicines get out to the people, and the ports. And so they began that. That resulted in increased attacks from the warlords and their groups. Subsequent to that, the United Nations said, we need to actually capture Mohammed Farah Adid. The result of that capture attempt was the video that you just saw. Now... In this conflict there were 18 Americans and one Malaysian who was part of the coalition that were killed there were 84 Americans and 7 Malaysians that were wounded there were 312 Somalis that were killed and over 800 Somalis that were wounded now loss of life here was tragic And certainly, the intent is to avoid that in the future. Those kinds of confrontations are not helpful. But from a military standpoint, that's a 75 to 1 ratio. Uh, Somalis killed or wounded to coalition forces killed or wounded. And so, if you look at this purely in a traditional military light, that's a military victory. But three days after this aired on CNN, and Clinton withdrew all U.S. forces from Somalia. Now, why was that? It was because we had won the tactical campaign but we had lost the strategic information war. The people in the United States were not prepared for this kind of involvement. And because we did a very bad job, frankly, of handling the information campaign early on, we found ourselves in a position where we had to engage in a traditional conflict that was not to anyone's advantage. So, Out of those two um, confrontations, Desert Storm and Somalia, came the Air Force doctrine on information warfare. And you'll note that information operations deals with both sides of the coin. It deals with the gain and exploit pieces information, and it deals with the attack and defend pieces. The gain and exploit is intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, precision navigation, weather. The attack and defend falls into the offensive and the defensive regimes. Now, what's different about those regimes? Because frankly, um, psychological operations, electronic warfare, deception, those kinds of things have been around for millennia. Uh, The Trojan horse is a great deception operation. So that's not new. What is new? I don't need to tell you that what's new is the computer revolution, and it is a revolution. I also don't need to tell you that processing power doubles every 18 months or that memory size triples every 18 months. You guys know that. But the impact that that has on us is significant, and what you may not realize is that 75% of military communications occur over a commercial background, uh, backbone. Now, that's a significant amount of unclassified but sensitive information, logistics information, for example, that travels across that that internet. Uh, Also something that's very new to us for the first time is that the military used to drive technology and innovation and that's not happening today. The commercial market actually is driving the technology revolution today and so there is a um, almost a 180 degree shift in our relationship to technology today. Um, Just some additional statistics to let you know why we are concerned. First of all, um, during Solar Sunrise, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term or not, but uh, Solar Sunrise was an Israeli hacker and two California teenagers that uh, got together to affect the internet. In that in February of '98. Uh, 88 Air Force bases were attacked. Subsequent to that, in uh, between June and February we ha- of '98 again, and '99, uh, and we had 19 Air Force systems attacked, but we lost 5.5 gigabytes of information. Now, if you think about that, that's enough eight by eleven, typewritten, single spaced pieces of paper to stand three times the height of the Washington Monument. That's a lot of data that was exfiltrated from Air Force and Department of Defense computer systems. 1999, viruses have grown at a rate of 42% greater than they had previously. The cost to, to businesses in the area of about $12 billion from that. Um, we've also seen the Chinese attack the uh, Falun Gong using various websites to, to do that. Uh, and you know about the uh, the love bug. Uh, 24 hours, it was around the world, knocked out 45 million computers, cost 8.7 give or take a couple of hundred million here or there, a billion dollars worth of damage. That's uh, pretty significant. But our thought process says that the information warfare and the things that we are about are not about the systems themselves. Rather, they are about how we shape the perception of an adversary. How do you shape that you deter action that the U.S. government does not want to have happen. And all of the the systems that we use today are absolutely dependent upon information and information technology. Whether it's in our air operations center, that's the planning hub, or whether it is in our aircraft, or even our munitions, or any of our computer tools, it's all uh, computer dependent and because of that we have an extensive vulnerability as well. We're also working on a concept that's called effects based targeting and what that means to you is that it's not the type of weapon that you use or even what you are targeting necessarily that's important. It's the effect that you're trying to create that is all important. And so if we are doing something using some force option uh, to take down a command and control system that is an information operations attack. Whether that is uh, dropping a bomb on a bridge to take the cables that run across that bridge out or whether it is doing some electronic warfare and and jamming a communications uh, relay tower. All of that is information attack. Now, what that means is, from our perspective, we have to have very, very precise, extremely refined information uh, about um, the area that we are going to attack. Uh, And, conversely, those things that we are going to defend. The gentleman standing is obviously a Purdue graduate, and the guy on the ground must be from IU. Or conversely, Michigan. But what it really means to us is that not only do I need to know about where uh, the, the building is that I need to target, where the antenna are that I need to target, what the switch is, actually have to know down to the revision number on the chip if i want to do some uh, some work against that kind of a target that's extremely precise information now today we're in an evolving process things are changing pretty drastically Um, We do an awful lot of manual integration still today, and that is very cumbersome. It's very, very difficult for us to take in the huge volumes of data and information that are out there and make something meaningful from those. Um, We have classification problems, of course, that hinder our efforts. But the real thought process here is how do we shape and deter How do we uh, prevent ourselves from having to get to the point where we default to a traditional kind of a conflict? How do I leverage an adversary so that I can um, get that adversary to change a behavior that the United States government has said is unacceptable without having to go in and use uh, kinetic energy weapons to make that, that point? And so what we're talking about here in the final analysis is information operations as an integrating strategy, something that takes all of the various force options that are available and allows you to selectively execute those force options when uh, the time is right and the uh, opportunity is there. So we're talking about interdisciplinary warfare here some of the things that we need help with that you might think about are battle space visualization. What kinds of tools would you need to help a commander understand what the situation is that's confronting him or her? How do you deny an adversary a sanctuary? Um, That's probably enough on that one. types of weapon systems count. Um, Influence is really hard to measure. Another area that is uh, something that um, you need to think about is how do you determine whether or not your actions have had the desired effect. They're really hard to measure. And these are the kinds of tools, the kinds of, uh, of disciplines that we have just as a way of uh, a review to look at, to use, to exercise, to try to help uh, to affect our uh, adversaries and, uh, and create different conditions. And I just wanted you to see what some of those adversaries are saying. If they they don't come through too well for you, let me read them. For example, the harvest in the mother of battles has succeeded. The greater harvest and its yield will be in the time to come. Saddam Hussein following the Gulf War. Socialism was born of the gun barrel and its triumphant advances are guaranteed by the gun barrel too. Kim Jong-il. Nobody can take Kosovo from us. The unity of our heroic people was such that it it amazed the whole world, at least that part of the world that uses free media where there is no censorship. Slobodan Milosevic. I'm not sure he said that with a straight face. The United States wants to rule the world with force. Only the followers of Allah and Muslims will rule the world. Osama bin Laden. That was January of this year. So I think you see there are an awful lot of folks out there who don't necessarily share the values of the United States and are willing to use lots of different options uh, to, uh, to help to shape conditions that they would like to have. Our responsibility is that we are in the fight every day. The conflict is there every single day. Um, there are lots and lots of opportunities that we can exercise to deal with that and to shape uh, our own context for what comes. And the whole issue is, this is about perceptions. It's about influencing the attitudes, uh, the mind of the adversary to try to get them to align themselves with a course of action that actually is conducive to US policy. Okay, any questions? Everybody awake? Okay, sounds good. We're going to turn you over to Jerry Webb, and he's going to talk about the threat.
2: when um, I went to find a tie to go with my blue shirt but I realized that a football game was occurring this Saturday. I, yeah. what? Who knew? <laughs> anyway, um, I hope that, I'm, I'm sure that notches me down just a little bit and and the fact that I'm going to tell you that I'm an intelligence analyst probably takes me down a little bit lower on the on the uh, respect scale but uh, I want to speak a little bit to tell you about our um, perception of threats to information systems, primarily hackers, and what we're doing at the Information Warfare to mitigate that um, through the analysis of the activities that we see occurring uh, against Air Force systems. As you can imagine, the dynamics of the environment make um, our particular job very uh, difficult, very intriguing at least, and uh, we've come up with some unique ways that we think will help in our ability to try to identify the human element behind the electronic attacks that we're seeing right now. Talk a little bit about the types of threats that we see everywhere from what we're calling the script kiddies up to nation states, who we would would believe would pose the uh, most greatest level of threat. Uh, Look at some of the analysis challenges that we have in trying to identify that human element. And then again, our approach at at how we want to, uh, to try to do that when we look at the threats, the first thing we want to start off is with the hackers. Hackers, for the most part, very unstructured. They like to operate alone or in small groups. They have a variety of reasons for doing what they like to do. They're obsessed. Uh, They like to, to go out and do malicious things on the internet post pornographic images on websites, which seems to be a very favorite thing of hackers. Um, And some do it for greed, sometimes that you can take advantage of the internet for monetary reasons. Um, In almost every single case we saw with most hackers is that for some reason or another they aspire for greatness. Um, From a mythological perspective, what we see primarily from hackers is that, for the most part, they're loud. there's a variety of different types of hackers, from the kind that we like to uh, very technically call lame to those who are a lot more sophisticated. Uh, the lame guys, the script kiddies, go out and use other people's tools, or they bumble around, we catch them. It's quite easy to catch those guys, they, they, they make a lot of noise as they bumble through the systems, they trip off all our alarms. Um, then, of course, there's the ones a little bit more sophisticated, they, they may do They may develop indigenous tools, or they may take an existing tool and modify it in hopes to defeat the the system security that we have in place. Um, For for the most case, a lot of copycat going on, and for the most case, in almost every single um, incident that we've seen with hackers, they make mistakes. And and, uh, the trick is really try to identify those mistakes and take advantage of it. Another kind of threat that we're seeing of late is something that we are beginning to call hacktivism, and that's kind of a transnational related threat. It's mostly politically motivated. This kind of threat is usually, uh, usually occurs uh, from groups, and want to be seen they want to be loud because they have a message that they want to get across to you. We uh, disagree with this political opinion or we disagree with this particular action and we're going to demonstrate that through our actions over the internet. Um, Web face-to-facements, email spamming, some sort of destructive uh, type of payload like a virus. These are the kind of things that they want to um, inject upon particular systems to send out a message and a good example of, of, uh, of a hacktivist type of activity occurred after the uh, bombing of the Chinese embassy in Kosovo last year. Uh, Soon after we saw that, we saw a a dramatic rise in activity coming from uh, ISPs in China. Web defacements, um, uh... Some denial of service types of attacks, and it was as a result of, of the Chinese people uh, responding to the bombing of their embassy, which I guess is understandable. The unique thing about that particular uh, activity was the fact that the Chinese government uh, takes great pride in their attempted ability to secure and monitor their own systems, and we had to know for some reason that that. Um, the Chinese were at least aware, the Chinese government was aware of this activity and it it appeared that they chose to do nothing about it. Uh, It's it's kind of the the same question that comes about with um, with the uh, protests against the Chinese Embassy. it occurred, uh, the Chinese government knew that it occurred, but they didn't do anything about it. So the question is, with the Chinese government, were they handing the, the, uh, the protesters the bricks and the paint, or were they standing back and just letting it happen? Same thing kind of applies here. Were they, were they behind this, or were they just letting their citizens uh, do this kind of activity? And, of course, the the, the more serious type of threat that uh, we have to contend with are the the threats from nation-states. This is is the structured opposition that we may face. Um, We see, or we expect to see, this kind of opposition or this kind of threat come as a means for collecting information. Because we would expect uh, a a, uh, structured organization like a nation-state to take advantage of the dynamics of the internet, Internet to go out and gather information or as a means to conduct war services, uh, denial of service attacks, that sort of thing. But the kind of methods that we would see from this type of group I think would be uh, remarkably different than what we'd see from your average hacker. We think their active activities would be very methodical. Uh, low and slow, what we call it. try to do very stealthy types of probes, stealthy types of techniques that cannot be detected by our sensors. Uh, they would follow a doctrine, we'd basically have a script spelled out for them that they would follow um, and maybe develop unique or um, unidentifiable tools that we can't pick up. Their operations we would suspect would be very, very sensitive, so it would be very, very difficult for us to, to pinpoint uh, a structured activity, as opposed to the hackers who are, very, are relatively easy to predict. And of course, uh, Colonel Stotts went over viruses uh, fairly extensively, but this is another kind of unique threat that we must face. And viruses, of course, could occur across the spectrum from your hacker types up to somebody more more structured, uh, but they definitely uh, have proven to be very effective and, um, and we must continue to, to monitor the growth and spread of this type of, uh, of tool. So what really are the commonalities of the types of threats that I've seen so far, or if I mentioned so far, what, One thing that we can be certain of is that before any kind of a threat on the internet is going to occur, there's going to be the existence of certain precursor events. Before an entity, a hacker for example, is going to go out and attack your system, that hacker is going to go out and do some some recon. He's going to probe your systems for vulnerabilities. He's going to probe to see uh, what particular ports he wants to access, what kind of tools he's going to choose to to attack your system. He's going to hopefully, if he's very good, he's going to map your network so he knows exactly where he wants to go in. And do some host enumeration where he goes out and sees what what your system is configured of. Real good hackers going to do that. And this is the kind of activity that we can identify with our intrusion detection sensors. And this is the big challenge for us. Uh, As you can imagine, the Air Force literally sees thousands and thousands of suspicious connections a week. And the challenge is basically to take these precursor events that are popping up and being able to relate them to a specific group or a specific entity to to react to it. And and that's real difficult to do because you basically you're you're, you're bombarded with this type of information. But it's really essential that you do that because the end result is computer network attack and that means it's too late. It's already occurred and you do mop up and you find out what happens and you try to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So really the challenge to try to take those precursor events and make some sense of them um, is something that we're trying to do at the Air Force Information Warfare Center. We really look at it from two, basically three perspectives on on addressing the challenge of of, uh, analyzing and profiling the threat. Uh, First is threat identification. And that's basically through the use of non-traditional source data, like data that derives from intrusion detection, data that derives from a system administrator, or a computer emergency response team. Um, That helps us to identify those precursor events. And by understanding those precursor events, we can then uh, compare that with traditional threat data, which would come from, say, law enforcement criminal investigations, to help us relate the two and provide indicators that we can then take back to the the defense community, the the information assurance community, to help them ensure that their systems are protected in the future. And the one thing that's really critical in what we do here is the need to share this data. Um, And and that's always been a problem. a lot of uh, distrust and discernation between law enforcement, the Department of Defense, and the commercial community. Uh, There is still a level of mistrust between those organizations, and rightly so because we all have different jobs that we must do. But what's critical is that we need to to determine some way or come up with some way that we can share certain elements of data uh, to ensure that we can protect our systems across the board. Often we see if, if a certain threat or a certain hacker will hit an Air Force system, that certain same hacker is going to hit a Department of Defense system, a, a U.S. government system or a commercial system. And if we don't work together to try to identify the pattern of activity, then the hackers won the battle. So what do we do? One of the things that we're doing in the Information Warfare Center is uh, attempting to analyze from a, uh, a threat perspective. Uh, specific threats or specific events that occur against Air Force systems. When the Air Force Computer Emergency Response Team identifies a specific event, say a POP3 probe um, against a specific Air Force base, if that event is determined at the time to uh, be initiated from a foreign host, and again, I'm an intelligence analyst, um, U.S. law prevents me, and rightly so, from investigating that occurs uh, within the United States. That is the uh, jurisdiction of law enforcement. But if the event was to occur from a foreign site, then I would take the information provided to me by the AFSERT and attempt to to characterize the uh, activity that occurred within the event. Now, we're not really technical analysts. What we try to do is try to uh, identify the human element behind that activity to determine who did this, why they did it, and if they're going to do it again. And as I said, that's a really tough job. And the whole uh, the, the whole purpose of this is to to understand or characterize that particular event, come up with an assessment and provide information back to to the uh, information assurance operator that we think this is the lame hacker or we think that this is something more serious that you should uh, be, uh, take extra precaution to, uh, to protect against. And some of the tools that we use actually are, are, are very quite simple. Uh, we take advantage of a lot of the open source research tools that are available to us on the networks. Um, again, trying to characterize, try to identify who's behind the activity. Oftentimes we're not successful. But we'll take advantage of all the tools that we can, we can get our hands on um, to try to, again, characterize the, the, the individual or the organization behind the activity. Everything you see here is freely available on the Internet. Um, it's non-intrusive. It can't work unless the, the system that we are, we are doing analysis on uh, prevents us from using them. But if they do, we will take advantage of it. Certain things like like DIG and NSLOOKUP, mostly certs will identify activity based on IPs. And um, they, they see the activity, they identify what it is, they take preventive steps to, to uh, make the activity cease and to prevent it from occurring again. What they will do to us is they will provide us with the IP and then we try to look it up and see who it is. Um, we also use whois to do that, basically go out, we we'll take a per- particular IP, relate it back to an organization, so we, we get a human face behind it. Then we will look at our database or at uh, intrusion detection logs, to determine if um, activity from that particular IP has happened in the past. So we start to see if, if it does exist, any, any trends or patterns that may occur. We'll go out and ping the system to see if it's alive. Maybe the system administrator, because we suspect that this particular system that we see the event is coming from is also a compromised host, probably about a 95% chance of that, we'll go see if that system administrator identified a problem and turned the network off then we'll finger the system and that's, that becomes very uh, a very useful tool particularly if you can identify the event as it occurs. If you can do that and you finger the system right away, you can see who's logged on and by identifying who's logged on there's a chance that one of the perpetrators is one of those people. Now of course a good hacker or a good intruder can mask their identity using the finger system but we'll take advantage of it anytime we, we can and, and, and run with it. Um, also do trace route. Trace route is a very useful tool because you can trace the, the route of the packages or the packets as they go from what we call the initiating site, the site where we see the event up to to the target site. And if we don't have a lot of information on that endpoint, we may be able to find information on the the next point where the packet had had gone. So that becomes a very useful tool. Also, of course, we surf the web. And this is very useful for us, particularly when we're going after hackers, because hackers, for the most part, like to talk. And they like to let everybody know how great they are and how successful they are. So we'll take advantage of that. Um, Another good tool that we like to use is Usenet. And that becomes very, very, uh, it's a very successful tool for us too because again, as I said, hackers like to talk and we're going to take advantage of that. And if hackers have a particular uh, uh, chat room or a a news group that they like to participate in, they will post a message and of course that message gets archived and a lot of, there's a lot of websites out there that will allow you access to that archived data. In this particular case, we had an incident about a year and a half ago uh, from a, uh, an individual called himself Zoomer. And if Zoomer's online, you can take notes, because we got you. Um, Zoomer did a, uh, he hacked a web page that belonged to the United States Air Force. And it was a very simple web hack. He, he just put up a black screen with his, with his emblem and said, you were hacked by Zoomer, and that was it. And we were asked by the ASTOR to try to identify who Zoomer was. And all we had to go on was Zoomer. So we went into um, a news group, queried Zoomer, and we, we found tons of hits. Now, oftentimes, hackers use the same name uh, to, to, uh, as, as their identifier. But in this particular case, we were able to link Zoomer up, and I know it may be kind of hard to see. Zoomer up with this individual, um, up where it says Author Killer Sequel. Uh, we believe that Killer Sequel and Zoomer were the same guy for two reasons. Primarily, uh, he was using the same ICQ number. So he's going to the same chat room all the time. And the other reason was he was using the same bogus email address, Reactor Yahoo. Most hackers like to do that. So okay. And we also thought, well, it's kind of suspicious at this particular message because it says, hello, I'm from Russia, and I need a photocopy of a credit card to commit fraud. So we think, yeah, okay, this guy's a little suspicious. We also don't think he's too bright, but he's a little suspicious. But as I said, what we tried to do is, is when hackers are young they often make mistakes and we found what Zoomer did in his mistake because we we, we end up taking that particular message and we reverse the header and by looking at the header we determine the actual origin of his email and this particular site, it's a university in St. Petersburg, Russia we surf to that site and not only did we find Zoomer's homepage, we found his picture and his address. So within 20 minutes we were able to go to the AFSCIRT and say, here's Zoomer, here's where he operates. And the Air Force was able to take the IP block that belonged to that particular university, they blocked it from access to Air Force systems and we never saw Zoomer again. Even though we continued to see Zoomer conduct activity at other sites. Now, pat ourselves on the back but at the same time we really realized that 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 Zoomer was really stupid. Uh, He's not a smart hacker and Um, Lesson for you all, if if you ever post anything on a a news group and you don't want to be identified, go and change your headers, okay? (laughs) Okay, where's my mouse? So, basically those are the kind of tools we use. Then we we take those particular tools, we take the data uh, that we have identified Uh, from the analysis of these individual events and then we will match them on the law enforcement side with any criminal investigative data that may exist or on the intelligence side, any intelligence that may exist in relationships to that particular event. And and by doing that, we will put those in what we call the the Joint Threat Incident Database, which is a DOD um, sponsored database that contains all the events data identified through DOD cert operations. And that's available to the DOD community uh, for correlation of events to derive patterns and trends of activity so they can use that to help predict uh, when certain events occur. One goal that we're trying to work with with the uh, commercial community and the educational community not at my level but much higher levels is to develop a similar type of database for use uh, within the uh, non-government community to share the similar similar type of information. Another thing that we do then is once, once we have uh, a good database on these uh, precursor events, we will take those events, do correlation, and those specific entities or organizations where we have seen a, a great deal of activity, and there is quite a few, we will develop profiles on those specific entities and basically what we do then is we try to gather as much data as we can on that particular uh, entity, try to determine why this serious level of of activity is occurring and make that information available to, to our community to help us then greater realize the types of threats that are faced against us. of course the whole goal of of doing all of this is to provide adequate warning to the Information Assurance operational community. Um, If you correlate precursor events, um, develop threat profiles, and you share that information across the board, then that'll help us try to identify the who, what, when, where, and why of the kind of events that we're seeing. And that's really the ultimate goal. Uh, We need to be able to predict the activity before it occurs so we could take the proper defensive actions to ensure that our systems are secure. And, of course, rapid dissemination um, to, in our case, our commander, uh, to our information assurance organizations, is, is the ultimate goal. Because, you know, the, the stuff happens in milliseconds, and, and it's really critical for us to be able to respond in milliseconds so we can make sure that, that the security of our systems is ensured. Is, is um, and um, that's pretty much my pitch, and um, now I'm going to pass this over to Captain Matt Beebe, who's going to talk to you about the, the, uh, the systems that we use now to
3: try to detect these events. Thank you. Uh, I am Captain Matt Beebe, and let me get the slides loaded up here. We're just going to give you a brief overview of some of the uh, intrusion detection tools that we use in the Air Force, kind of what that allows us to do as far as some, some of the capabilities we have, and also get kind of wrap up with a quick overview of some of the over-the-horizon technologies that we're looking at and some of the weaknesses that we still have that we're not able to uh, accommodate, some of the things that you may want to think about in research initiatives and that sort of thing. Um, I guess or to brief that. Obviously, no defense is impenetrable. You know, we, we know that we wouldn't be here as network security professionals if that were not the case. But One of the things that we we find interesting in a lot of our analysis of network security incidents is that only about 50% of the ones that rise to the level of an incident are detected through an intrusion detection system of one sort. The other half of them are either alert system administrators looking at logs, that sort of thing, or there are additional boxes that were found during the research of of one incident and it turned out there were three or four other boxes hacked during that um, same incident not real good uh, statistic for a guy in my business trying to build an intrusion detection system. Um, so really what the thrust of our research is in, in the technology exploration that we do at the center is to try to develop methodologies to detect suspicious activity and a lot of that is false positive prone but then determine analysis methodologies where we can turn that suspicious data into information being either uh, a correlated activity and doing that type of analysis and that's a difficult challenge that we uh, put forth. We believe we Got some tools that are helping us do that, but it's still a, a difficult problem to solve. Some of the unique mission needs—you know—we're very similar in the in the toolsets we use as the commercial entities are, but we've, uh, being in the Air Force and the military has a little bit different uh, take how we do network security and computer network defense. That real-time situational awareness is very important to us. We can't find out two days later that we were hacked at a system. Um, hierarch- hierarchical correlation. I need to be able to send up to decision makers that this event is happening on the East Coast and the West Coast at the same time and we do believe it's from the same source. That factors into if, if somebody is trying to cancel a mission, you know, scrub a sortie, uh, keep keep our, our jets from spinning up to go drop bombs, those types of things. Um, if we're being targeted in a specific manner, we need to know about that in um, a course as soon as possible. Also Jerry talked about the precursor events, that low and slow uh, probing and mapping of networks. It's very easy to do that stealthily nowadays. A lot of tools out there commonly available. Um, some of you may have used the tools and of course in a research environment only but they, they are very difficult to detect however they're not undetectable um, and of course there's also multiple events I talked about um, and then new, new attack techniques we really want to try to stay ahead of that bow wave make sure that we're able to react in as near real-time as possible when new techniques come out you know there were some some different scanning techniques that they introduced in the latest version of NMAP that we had actually postulated were good ideas and we had rolled those out into our our code before uh, it was released in the latest version of NMAP. So we kind of felt good about that. But again, we're still playing catch-up in most of the areas that we work. Force Interoperability and Network Security Tools is very difficult and ever-present problem. Uh, Manpower Intensive, we've got at the AFSERT uh, about 40 folks dedicated on a given shift. Uh, There's a much larger organization than that that are doing analysis trying to understand what's going on across the Air Force Enterprise, which is, which is comprised of about 140 um, different sensors out there, about 108 physical locations. And um, then also, being, being able to report that up in a hierarchical nature is one of the unique needs that we have. Maybe it's a little bit different than some of the commercial entities. And um, this kind of gives you a pictograph of the way, it, the way it works. We've got this intermediate level now that's, that's coming online. It used to be that the base sent their data right up to the AFSERT, and now we've got an evolving mission approach that, invo- that includes an intermediate tier at the comes or major commands. Um, um, so that it re- relationship is evolving and we can't necessarily at the absurd at the enterprise level lose visibility in the overall global perspective because we are targeted at different sites at the same time as part of an overall information operation from an adversary and it's important to be able to correlate that event so I am I am the pro- manager for the automated security incident measurement system, and we're in the process of rolling out a new version upgrade, which is both a software and hardware upgrade. It's actually been about an eight-year-old program where we've had infrastructure out there for that long, and that's that's been on Spark-based equipment. Um, ASIM 2.0. That that uh, infrastructure has done well, netted a lot of hackers, and, and it's 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 really kept the pace with a lot of the commercial tools. With the ASIM 3.0 rollout, we feel like we're doing some really neat things with that. Is we're actually built it to be an active device where it can actually participate in the network much like a firewall would or router ACLs would be able to provide you a defense in depth strategy. Now, so what that allows us to do is is provide commanders with a lot of flexibility because not only can I block through static rules, certain activity that I never want to see, but I can react to a changing threat environment by denying or shunning traffic that I've deemed abnormal or too suspicious. So that gives us the ability to be a relatively permissive environment and not restrict the operations but also be able to react in a a quick manner, in a decisive manner to keep traffic that looks intrusive or maybe it's an an exfiltration of data that's happening we can cut that off midstream and that sort of thing so we don't see those five gigabytes of data being transferred in one session and then have to play clean up, close the barn doors after the cows all get out. also the the capturing of session summary data this is where we actually log all the raw packets to hard disk and then a lot of that is archived some of its expired depending like web traffic we don't keep for very long just because of the volume of it but that allows us to put events in a context to be able to say now my sensor reported this how could how can I determine if that's a false positive or a legitimate event and the way you do that is by having the raw data available to you to be able to make that determination so we, we we kick that up through the sensor all the way up to our director I've got some screenshots, kind of some of the technology that we're using a little bit later in the briefing. And then also have the ability to do session playback, give us that situational awareness of what really was going on. And that's really helpful t- because you can determine whether it's an automated attack or it's actually somebody sitting at, tapping at a keyboard. And that's helpful when you're judging your adversary, trying to figure out what they're attempting to do. So those types of things are very useful to have. And then of course, the bread and butter of any intrusion detection system is its ability to detect an alarm and respond in real time to network security events. So we're looking at all ports and services and that's a new capability with the 3.0 sensor where we used to look at a subset of the most risky ports. What we saw in in practice was anytime a hacker would get into a box, they'd install a backdoor on a high port and they'd they'd obfuscate our ability to look at them. So we're actually looking at all ports and services. That's turning into over a million connections a day that we load into our database of, of source IP talk. To Dest IP. So that's a, a, a lot of data that's going into our repository. And then, of course, the uh, you know uh, uh, renewed emphasis on Windows and, and router protocol, those types of events, so we're able to see uh, different types of attacks on the infrastructure as opposed to the Unix particular events that sensor data is fed into the common intrusion detection director. And what the, the SIDS tool is, is essentially an Oracle database with a uh, Java front end that provides a server, you know, a three-tiered client server architecture that allows us to push all that sensor data up there. I talked about a connection record, um, source IP, dest IP, source port, desk port, uh, number of bytes, and number of packets. You know, for every connection that happens across the Air Force infrastructure, um, save web and secure shell, those connections are loaded into this database Also, any real-time event that's an alertable event that has met some type of precondition that we've configured the sensor for is loaded into this database. And of course, the real-time events are pushed to an operator display and they're adjudicated from there. But those connections, we actually use an expert system that allows us to look back and develop patterns. we can query that data in, in, a, in a variety of manners to be able to look at it in, in different dimensions and be able to recognize that there are some patterns that stick out. What The thrust of our efforts are trying to figure out where in the haystack to look for the needle. We're not able to vector in exactly on where the needle is yet. The state of technology isn't quite there. But if we can focus on which quadrant of the haystack, we're actually improving the efficiency of our operators. Um, Of course, that gives us the ability um, with that expert system is to detect the patterns in the data for those low and slow attacks, which can happen both across time, of course, which is a more traditional sense, but within the Air Force and a lot of other um, um, large enterprises, you have very similar uh, installations of software and hardware. So I've got a mail server that looks the same at a hundred different locations or I've got a logistics server, a transportation server and so now instead of sitting there knocking at the door at one particular location, if I know as an adversary that you've got configured systems the same way across your enterprise, I'm just going to tickle here, tickle there, tickle there until I eventually figure out a way in which I can breach your systems. Well once I've done that, now I can go back and hit all of those systems and have root access or user access, whatever the exploit was. So we want to be able to detect those types of attacks in progress as they're emerging so we don't sit there after the fact and and again try to put the cattle back in after the barn door, you know, close the barn door after the cattle's already been out. Um, this is kind of a screenshot of what the, the tool does. It's tabular display. I'm not sure if it shows up on your screens very well, but all this allows us to do is as the alerts come in, they're immediately there available for the operator to see the source IP, dest IP. They can double click on either IP and it automatically launches a who is lookup so they can kind of orient themselves to where the, the likely source point uh, or at least the next hop is on the attack they can double click on the event in, in this case this is one where we actually had a um, where, we, where we captured somebody um, trying to upload um, an account into an Etsy password file so we're actually able to con- capture the context of that and recognize immediately that somebody's trying to put a, you know, a bad account into the Etsy password file and you're immediately able to ascertain that this is somebody up to no good this isn't somebody that forgot their password this isn't somebody that's out um, um, just trying to do, you know, maybe just playing around a little bit. This is somebody who's trying to breach the system and gain unauthorized access as well as establish a backdoor back in. So the other, the other thing we can do, and this is where the richness of the data set becomes very helpful, is having that data all pumped back into that database so I can go back and at my fingertips do a query of those connections and say have I seen this source IP anywhere else at this site anywhere else across the Air Force and now I can immediately see if this is somebody who is just out here having fun at this particular site or if this is a dedicated attack that's been launched against the Air Force infrastructure and and, and we see that a lot we also, the, the other thing that this provides is having all this data repository online is when I go back and query that database I can see precursor events so if this is somebody who's done you know ping sweeps and then they've done a little bit of port scan and then they've narrowed in on their target in that manner. I'm going to react in a particular way. If this is a root exploit that came out of nowhere, I have absolutely no idea that source IP has never been seen across Air Force networks again. This is probably somebody that's a little more hacky or a little more savvy trying to cloak where they're coming from. And that again generates a different response in the way that we respond to these types of incidents by having that type of data available to us. Um, some of the technology trends that are really a challenge to us. Uh, as well as anybody else kind of trying to do network security is you know high speed networks. That is that is something that we are not going to get around. It's difficult. We're, we feel like we're building a, an excellent software package out there in San Antonio. We're putting it out on new hardware, dual processors, the latest and greatest at the time, but in 12 to 18 months that's going to be a very difficult system to keep pace with the changes in our network speeds. So that's something that's very difficult to do. As well as when you go to an ATM based wide area network, that Just hoses up any sort of content based pattern matching that you do on the intrusion detection systems also encrypted networks. Now the good thing here about encrypted networks is I don't see this being a very likely 100% adoption anytime soon so there's still gonna be some viability in the uh, uh, network intrusion detection market but the encrypted uh, data you know being able to shoot X terms through secure shell and this sort of thing the the attackers are are very capable of launching a lot of stuff through reflectors and through secure shell so we're not able to see anything other than the evidence of this host talking to this host And, and although that does provide some information, it's not a whole lot of information. Um, of course, uh, telephony and the voice over IP, now we've got co- you know collaborative environments where the attackers are not just sending email back to each other, they're in chat rooms, they're talking, they're talking over the phone and allowing themselves to launch a more effective attack against the infrastructure. Of course, backdoors, and that's always something that we're worried about, being installed by malicious code, those types of uh, Activities where somebody visits a web page and it actually has a, you know, a malicious code there that they unwittingly run on their machine and now they've used turned their machine into a leaf node in somebody's denial of, of service infrastructure, distributed denial of service. Uh infrastructure. So those those types of things really provide challenges to us. And then, of course, the internal user abuse. We're looking at the perimeter networks with our network intrusion detection systems, and we've got some ways of, of looking at insider abuse and misuse, but really those are uh, emerging technologies, and they're quite immature in, in, in comparison to what we're doing on the network um also one of the other things that uh, really provides a challenge and, and we're just now finally starting to get our hands around this is normally on our, our hackers coming through the internet out in through the, the base perimeter router, if we've got effective security policy in place, if we've got an effective network security detection in place, we're either going to deter them or we're going to notice them coming through. So that's a pretty good uh, scenario to be in. Unfortunately now, we've got an entire different set of infrastructure. We've got certainly our email servers and that sort of thing are important. But our heating ventilation systems are important. Our power distribution systems are important. Um, All this other infrastructure, our phone switches, all of this other infrastructure is also interconnected through modems or direct connects back into the backbone. And so now the hackers can come in through the the public switch telephone network back through the same base central office into the phone switch on on any given base. And if those systems aren't properly configured, they're able to be breached in that capacity, as well as a lot of these systems are backbone into the base local area network, so then they're able to use that as a launching off point that does go around our network intrusion detection system, so that certainly presents a a pretty significant challenge, and we're looking at ways where we've got actually um, some telephony-based intrusion detection systems, Um, there's also some commercial vendors out there doing similar products, so we're out there trying to partner and, and make sure that we're adequately protecting our PBXs and our base switches in the same way that we looked at doing this about six, eight years ago as on our IP based networks. Um, one of the other things that we're doing both with the telephony environment as well as um, the IP data networks is to try to pull these in, in into what's called in the military a sensor fusion environment where we try to leverage each individual tool and make that a synergistic effort to be able to understand what's going on in our network and of course by extension provide better protection out to our network um, infrastructure. And that's through whether they're router, fire, firewall logs, um, the network in, network intrusion detection sensors in the data that they report, um, host-based tools, you know, we use Accent Intruder Alert, um, also the uh, Tripwire products, those types of tools out there provide a wealth of information, but right now they're stovepiped in their, in their deployment. So we're trying to roll those in, and that's the common in the intrusion detection director is to be able to provide those all into a central repository and then be able to give and take between those systems, better understand what is going on on your network as well as be able, be able to better adapt and provide recommend, recommended courses of action to the senior leadership so they know what is the best approach to shoring up that weakness or that vulnerability. Um, and of course the intent there is to provide an enterprise-wide approach that can give us an adequate protection, you know, adequate basic level of protection, but at the same time provide us the ability to know when somebody breaches the system and be able to react, understand, be able to do the battle damage assessment in cyberspace so we know how bad it was and be able to go back and provide after-action capabilities for our, for our decision makers. And that concludes my portion of the briefing. We are all available for any questions that you folks um, have for us. Um, We do appreciate, again, you taking the time to come out and listen to what we have to say, and we thank you very much. If you
0: have any questions, come up and see them here afterwards. We've run a bit over time, so we're not going to take them online.